0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Meg Heckman, author of the book Political Godmother, Nacky Script Loeb, and the newspaper that shook the Republican Party. Meg, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. No problem. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, So I am an assistant professor at Northeastern University's School of Journalism in Boston. And um, prior to becoming a journalism professor, I worked for a long time as a a full-time journalist. Um, I worked mostly in newspapers, mostly in local news, and spent most of my career in the state of New Hampshire, um, which is where this book is based. And, um, New Hampshire gave me a a real affection for the importance of local news and civic engagement, uh, presidential politics, because it's the home of the first in the nation presidential primary and also cars with four wheel drive.
0: <laughs> I was thinking about how all, all those things you describe really come across in your book, because you, you talk about things that you, so many books about uh journalists and 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 political coverage seem to overlook which is that local dimension which which is mm-hmm. obviously so important when you're talking about uh Scripps loeb and uh the importance of uh her newspaper in terms of not just uh, you know local politics but national politics
1: yeah absolutely so what
0: led you to write a biography of, of Scripps loeb
1: well, I think like a lot of a lot of book projects, it started by accident. Um, when I was still working at a, a local newspaper in New Hampshire, um, I was a reporter and later an editor for the Concord Monitor, which is the, the capital city newspaper. I was invited to teach a writing workshop, a, a news writing workshop at this nonprofit community school called the Nacky Scripps Loeb School of Communications. And it was a nonprofit entity that um, Naki Scripps Loeb had set up in the final years of her life, and it owns most of the union leader newspaper. So she was very concerned about hedge fund-owned chains coming in and and buying up newspapers and the effects that that would have on both editorial independence and the quality of the local news product. She was 100% right about what corporate chain ownership would do to the local news product. Um, so she, she created this school and it owns the union leader. And as part of its nonprofit mission, it leads these, these small, mostly free classes on writing, photography, public relations, cartooning, like you name it, if it has to do with communications, this school offers it. And so I was invited to teach this workshop I certainly knew a lot about the union leader. You know, I grew up in rural New Hampshire and never really meant to come back, but got fascinated with political journalism, so I did. Um, so I knew about the union leader. I, I knew about William Loeb, who had been kind of this larger-than-life, arch-conservative um, figure, um, and he'd been Naki's husband, but I had somehow never heard of her. So I, I walked into this school, And it's in a former truck driving institute in an industrial park in, in New Hampshire's largest city. So it's kind of this weird scene and the walls were covered with, um, artifacts from Naki's career and from her time leading the union leader and, um, you know, her, her time married to William Loeb. And I kind of became fascinated by her. And as I was leaving that first night, thought to myself, I want to read this woman's biography. So I started over the next couple months or so looking around to find things that had been written about her. And I found a few newspaper and magazine articles from the late 1980s, early 1990s. But beyond that, there was nothing. And even more troubling, after she died in, in 2000, I discovered that she was almost immediately written out of history. And this is something that happens to far too many powerful women in history. They are omitted, um, either on purpose or because of um, the many implicit gender biases in our society. And so I found that stories written about the union leader and New Hampshire politics in 2000, in 2004, and all the way up through 2016, were attributing work that... Nacky Loeb had done to her husband William, even though he had been long dead um, by the time she had done this work. So all of this just had me completely fascinated by her career and also kind of confused and, and frustrated as to why she was not more widely documented. So that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole, And um, I spent, you know, a few years casually looking around archives, trying to get a sense of what was out there. And my big breakthrough was when I was able to negotiate access to the private archive of her papers that are in several dozen crumbling banker's boxes at the Nacky Loeb School of Communications um, in central New Hampshire. And so two summers ago, three summers ago, uh, a research assistant and I spent Virtually every weekday of this very long, hot summer, um, digging through these dusty boxes uh, the the files are what librarians call unprocessed archives, which I came to learn was the polite term for just an utter mess uh, <laughs> was, was whatever yeah. <laughs> it was whatever filing system Naki, Loeb and her secretaries had for her papers, um, but she kept everything, and if if you wrote a letter to Naki Loeb, she would write you back. And what, what I discovered was decades and decades of correspondence, both to the union leader's diverse and large audience, and then also a lot of internal communications um, within the union leader corporation. So I was able to document both her her kind of day-to-day life as a businesswoman, as a newspaper woman, as a a local figure who was running a, a major newspaper company, at least for this region, a major newspaper company during a time of tremendous change in publishing and mass communication. So I was able to document that. And then I was also able to document how she was this crucial node in what I think is best described as an analog social network of right-wing activists during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I suspect before also.
0: Yes, because I was thinking, as you uh, explain in the period prior to her assuming the control over the newspaper, that she you know, had this long involvement in right-wing activism that you describe uh, her uh, you know, her relationship with her with her husband as a collaborative one in terms of operating their uh, newspapers and in, in reflecting their shared views. It, it, it seems that that aspect of it is something that unfortunately can't penetrate the notion of how much they you know chatted and and, and shared the views. But you make it clear that in in your book that she was you know probably has a footprint in the news, in Manchester Union Leader and the other newspapers that probably goes back to the nineteen fifties.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, both she and William Loeb were very public with um their with their colleagues, with their friends, um, with members of the national media, that theirs was a collaborative operation. Now he was very much the public face of the operation. I, I suspect that some of that had to do with gender roles at the time. Um, I also suspect that their personalities really factored into that. You know, He was very much larger than life. He, he is perhaps best known by political historians and, and journalism historians for these just venomous, racist, homophobic, in other ways bigoted front page editorials. That would run on the union leader they were pretty long they'd be full of capital letters and they they were always barked opinion but they were on the same front page as as the paper's daily news product um and so he was known as kind of this um very outspoken figure who because of the newspaper's location in the home in the first in the nation primary had this weird outsized role in national politics. And so that story is pretty well documented. What was less known and what I discovered in researching this book is Nackie brought a tremendous amount of business expertise to the relationship and to the company. So she was the granddaughter of E.W. Scripps, the newspaper baron who created what eventually became the Scripps Howard newspaper chain, and her father took over the company when when she was a child. And her entire life, um, she she split her time between Southern California in a Scripps family compound called Miramar, and um, the East Coast. There were a, a few places where she lived. Um, Ridgefield, Connecticut, was one of them. Um, and she and her mother and her siblings would kind of follow her father around on on trains um and other means of travel while he did business um at the various scripts newspaper properties. So she was constantly surrounded by newspaper executives and powerful people growing up. Um, and she used to joke that she wanted to do anything but <laughs> run a newspaper. And, um, she, she actually, um, she, she was a tremendously talented artist. Um, she was a very, very good illustrator. And when she was a teenager, she dreamed of becoming a medical illustrator, which I, I guess was a perfectly viable career in, um, the late 1930s, early 1940s. And so she went to college to study that. Um, from what I was able to glean, she was a, she was a fine student, you know, not a scholar, but very curious about the world, liked history, liked art, liked music. Um, and when she was just about done with college during the height of world war II, she eloped with this much older man, a guy named George Gallagher, who was 20 years her senior, um, dashing just by all descriptions of him was, was just tall and handsome he owned an airplane and a farm in rural Vermont, and he was famous for inventing sunscreen. So he he had a couple profiles written of him in places like Time Magazine because he contributed um, chemical-based products like sunscreen and bug nets and bug repellent um, to the war effort. And so she just wanted out of the newspaper business. And she, so she eloped with him, moved to rural Vermont um, and the marriage unfortunately soon broke up. And I, I tried not to get too salacious about this uh, (laughs) in the book. Well, because I mean, she was young. They um, Naki and George Gallagher, um, Naki's first child was the result of that relationship. Um, And her name is also Naki. um, And she was actually incredibly helpful and very gracious with her time for this book. And um, I tried not to, to get too deep into the salacious details of the divorce. One, I couldn't prove half of them. You know, there were a lot of rumors flying around. Um, many of the people that I would have gone to to verify that information are long dead. Um, but at the time of, of this marriage crumbling, of the divorce, it received international news attention because Naki as a young woman, she was described in the press as a, as a Scripps heiress, a newspaper heiress. So she was almost Kardashian level famous. You know, if we think about who we might compare, um, who we might compare her to in modern times, take away, you know, there wasn't social media, there wasn't Instagram. um, But if you look at kind of the, the media landscape at the time and her place with it, You know, you could maybe make an argument that, like I said, she was Kardashian level famous or um, I don't know uh, who who was the Hilton heiress who was in the news. Paris Hilton. Yeah, Paris Hilton. So you could you. So she was like that level of of known kind of in the in the culture at the time. Um, So she's in the middle of this divorce. It's getting attention because of who she is. And then it comes out that she'd been having an affair with this ambitious newspaper publisher named William Loeb, who at that point was building his newspaper empire and it included some properties in Vermont. And so he was pretty well known at that point, too. So this this divorce is just in the news. And um, long story short, she gets divorced. Um you know, is in a relationship with William Loeb, although they don't get married until the early 1950s um, because he was also married to someone else and it's very messy. Um, but around the time that she joined the, the business, she joined the Loeb newspapers, um, it really started to expand. And I think she brought both financial wealth, you know, she had a lifetime income as a, as a Scripps heiress. Um, so she brought some financial stability to the relationship and to the family. Um, I was never, never able to figure out if Scripps money actually purchased or funded any of the Loeb newspapers, but it certainly made it possible for them to have a, a fairly high standard of living while um, expanding the newspaper company um, in Vermont. And in New Hampshire. So she was very much involved, um, both from a material standpoint and then also just from a day to day management standpoint. You know, she helped with the mail, they discussed day to day newspaper operations. Um, William Lowe worked remotely. Both William and Naki were pioneers in work from home, um, which you know we're all doing it now because of the pandemic. But you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, it was was kind of unheard of. Uh, William Loeb often his critics, one of their um, one of their common critiques was that he was an absentee publisher because he and Nacky split their time between a ranch in Nevada and, um, this mansion in, in Eastern Massachusetts and people would say, well, he's never really in New Hampshire anyway. And, um, I found out that's probably not entirely true. He was there a lot. His staff certainly, um, was on their toes because they expected him to just drop into the newsroom at any moment. Um, and they did a lot of work by phone and by mail and um, by dictation. So it it's difficult because we can't say, oh, Naki was in the newsroom with William Loeb two days a week or, or whatever. We just don't know because so much of the newspaper management happened remotely and in the domestic sphere. So I think um, we were... It is definitely – it definitely makes a lot of sense that she was heavily involved. Um, I also found some photos of her in on meetings and that sort of thing.
0: I was wondering if you could actually uh, take a step back for a moment and explain a bit about the context. What was the the, the Manchester Union leader like? And I was also thinking about if you could explain a bit about the context because the timing here really is key because she – she marries William Loeb, and mm-hmm. the Manchester Union leader starts to assume this role right at the t- time when the Man- when the New Hampshire primary really starts to matter because mm-hmm. it, it really was 1952, you, know, when, which is when a lot of the, these things start to really come together. Is the first time where that where the where the uh, where the New Hampshire primary plays this role in Republican politics, and you start to see the paper tr- using its influence to uh, support candidates that uh, William Loeb uh, feels best represent his views and what the country needs.
1: Yes. Um, So the union leader, just backing up, by the time William Loeb acquired it, um, it was the largest, it was the only statewide newspaper in the state of New Hampshire. Um, And by the time William Loeb, through a series of personality clashes and financial struggles, had like forced out all of the various business partners that had helped him purchase the paper um, and, and assumed leadership of it almost entirely. Um, that was early 1950s. And that was also the same time that the modern New Hampshire primary was really born. So New Hampshire has had primary presidential elections um, since the progressive era in the in the early 1900s. Um, but until the early 1950s, um, delegates appeared on the ballot, not the candidates themselves. So um, in the early 1950s, the names of the actual candidates began appearing on the ballot. And, um, there was this really interesting, um, very well-documented race, um, where, you know, Eisenhower it was Eisenhower, right? Yeah. Okay. He was Eisenhower. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, when, uh, you know, Eisenhower, he, he never, he didn't want to campaign in the state. He, he was busy with, you know, the rest of his life. And so there was this very interesting kind of, um, activist-led campaign. Um, and it, it was just there were, you know, cabaret shows and and kind of the the type of um you know politics is entertainment that that we see a lot of now today um really started to get traction and um the union leader was very much in the thick of it. And um you know 1950s, 1960s, all the way through now, the the attention on New Hampshire just kept growing every four years. And because the union leader was the only statewide newspaper and was such an outspoken conservative voice, it had this odd outsized role. And then there was also this just fascination by the, the national press with this, kind of quirky newspaper in a really small state and led by this this outsized, hyper-conservative pol- um, publisher in the form of William Loeb.
0: So you have this paper which has this, you know, inf- that, that's really punching above its weight in so many ways. It's the dominant newspaper in the state. It's these, It has this, you know, unique Presence in national politics, the ability to uh, exert influence during this primary, which is becoming more and more important. Where did uh, William Loeb and and, and Naki Scripps Loeb uh, want to? What was their vision for it, and how did they how did they seek to use that influence to uh, shape uh, national politics?
1: Yeah, so both William and Naki were um, early members of what eventually became the the conservative movement during the second half of the 20th century. Um, And we saw this manifest in a couple of different ways. So Naki, she, of the two of them, uh, of William and Naki Loeb, she was much quieter. Um, She often described herself as an introvert. People who knew her described her as an introvert. Um, I was concerned about using that term, um, because I think it can be gendered sometimes, but in this case, I, I think it's pretty accurate. She didn't love being out in the spotlight. Um, she preferred to let William Loeb do that, but there were a few times, um, during, uh, the, the McCarthy era and then later during, um, the debate over desegregation of public schools in the South, where she weighed in and used the union leader as a platform, um, during the during the McCarthy era, she sent a an open telegram to one of her brothers um, who was leading the Scripps Howard newspaper chain because she thought that the the, the chain was being too hard on its coverage of of Joe McCarthy. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that was interesting and got national attention, um, and then. During the efforts to desegregate um, Little Rock High School, she drew an editorial cartoon that's called Brotherhood by Bayonet. And um, it descri- it. I'll try and describe it because um, this is a podcast. It depicts um, two small children, one white, one black, in front of a schoolhouse. And there are two soldiers with bayonets pushing them together. And the caption says, love each other or else. And that cartoon ran on the front page of the union leader. And um, there were copies of the paper that got into the hands of Southern politicians very quickly. And there were photos on the... Associated Press wire and some other wire services of of Southern politicians holding up the front page of the union leader with NACI's pro-segregation cartoon on it. The cartoon was picked up by a number of um, right-wing organizations, a number of segregationist groups, um, particularly the White Citizens Council. And uh, to use a modern term, that image went viral and it was on bumper stickers, it was on pamphlets. I was able to find some photographic evidence of the, the sticker on a, a town government door um, in the South 10 years later. And underneath it, it had her name. So because of that and a few other things, Nacky Scripps Loeb was this very well-known voice within the conservative movement. And as a number of other historians have documented, and as we're being reminded with the rhetoric around, you know, the the current presidential campaign, um, women, particularly white Christian upper middle class women, have played historically a huge role in defining and upholding the tenets of conservatism. Um, and so this was an example of that. But you know, Mackey didn't need to. Um, go talk at school board meetings or um, run off flyers or join the local John Birch Society because she had the union leader. And so she could, um, when she felt it was appropriate and when she was so moved, use the union leader to advocate for her version of conservatism.
0: And as you explained, that's a very, right-wing version that she supports yeah. Barry Goldwater. They support Nixon mm-hmm. in 68, but by 1972, they're supporting John Ashbrook, which right. you know, is, is really saying something in terms of, you know, the, the, not just the fact that they're supporting a more conservative candidate than Nixon, but the fact that they're willing to, you know, defy an incumbent president and, and take a very public stand against someone who they know is almost certainly going to be renominated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think if Nixon isn't conservative enough for you, um, that, uh, that says something. Um, yeah, and I think her ideology was really challenging for me as, as I was writing this book, because, you know, as, as you've said, and as I talked about just now, you know, she was, um, she was on the side of white supremacists and segregationists. Um, she and her husband both wrote editorials that were um, terribly homophobic, um, they, they both opposed the, the women's rights movement in all of its forms. Um, years later, she advocated against any type of a holiday for Martin Luther King. New Hampshire was the last state in the nation to adopt a Martin Luther King holiday. Um, so, you know, I, I want to be clear. She was on the wrong side of history on, on a lot of issues. Um, but she was also. Written out of history, you know, her her role and her voice and and her efforts to define conservatism or her version of conservatism and advance it and inject it into the national political discourse um, that needs to be documented. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, she had been almost completely omitted from history or overshadowed by her husband. Um, So her legacy very much needed to be documented as her legacy, but it is also very fair to critique and criticize that legacy. Um, So the fact that this book exists does not mean that I am endorsing those um, extreme and problematic and dehumanizing points of view.
0: It, it seems that in terms of that legacy, the two most uh, significant moments in it occur in the late 1970s. I was wondering if you could explain both the um, what happens in terms of the accident and then how it is that she takes over the paper after her husband dies in 1980.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um – in 1977, um, Nacky and William Loeb were driving back to their Nevada ranch. It was shortly before Christmas. Um, they'd had dinner with a minister friend. And um, something happened and the Jeep they were in spun off the road. Um, it was probably black ice. And the the Jeep went over an embankment and um, Nacky got pinned underneath the dashboard and she nearly died and she was paralyzed from the chest down for the rest of her life. And she had to teach herself to do almost everything again. You know, she was on a ventilator. She had to come off of that. Um, So she had to learn how to breathe, how to brush her teeth, how to put on socks, um, how to move around. And then she had to learn how to, to live from a wheelchair. And, she had been a very, very active person her entire life. She was a, a skier, a hiker, um, a very accomplished horsewoman, uh, just loved to be outside, loved to be active, loved to fly fish. And so she had to relearn how to be a, a sportswoman and um how to be active. And she often credited the resilience that she discovered in herself during that process with giving her the strength and the confidence to take over the newspaper when William Loeb died in 1981. Because around the time that Naki had her accident and was recovering, William Loeb, um, he he had been diagnosed with prostate cancer um, a few years prior, but it came back, and he got very sick very fast. And the lobes were were very concerned about this information getting out um, because they they didn't want to show any weakness. Um, the 1980 presidential primary was starting to ramp up. Um, they had supported Reagan in '76. And they planned to do so again in 1980. And they were really supporting Reagan. Um, in fact, there were a lot of jokes that the union leader was the Reagan campaign's newsletter. Um, <laughs> so they, they didn't want to create any question in the run-up to the New Hampshire primary that, um, that the union leader was powerful and was there for Reagan. So they kept William Loeb's illness a secret and um, I, I found evidence and wrote this in the book that towards the end, Naki was writing many letters that William Loeb then signed. I don't know to what extent she was doing that. I don't know when that started. I also found no evidence that she was writing his editorials. As far as I know, he was right up until the end. If, if he wrote an editorial and it had his, if there was an editorial in the union leader that has his name on it, he wrote that. Um, but I was not, but I mean, she was doing a lot of the the business side, a lot of the correspondence with politicians, um, even, um, before his death in 1981. Um, And so when he died, she took over as president and publisher of the Union Leader Corporation. Uh, This was September of 81. And so almost immediately after taking over as president and publisher, uh, you know, Naki had to deal with just a, a tremendous number of. Of organizational and management challenges that had nothing to do with the union leader as a political force. And I think it's really important for, for listeners to understand that the union leader really operated on two parallel paths. It was very much a political organ um, when it came to politics, particularly conservative politics, particularly as it related to the presidential primary every four years, but in addition to that, it was also a local newspaper, and it was New Hampshire's only statewide local newspaper. And Naki, for all of her political activism, um, believed very deeply in the importance of local news, and she really saw an opportunity to expand the newspaper and expand its coverage area and its circulation during the 1980s. And that was around the same time that New Hampshire was just undergoing this tremendous population boom as people moved north from Massachusetts in search of cheaper homes. Uh, There was also a lot of competition from television stations, other local newspapers were attempting to grab those those new residents, and Naki really wanted to compete. One because she wanted to serve local audiences, she truly believed in that, but also because she understood that having an engaged audience was incredibly important for the union leaders' political clout. So that meant she had to do everything from um, you know get rid of this uh, you know money sucking afternoon edition. Uh, that they'd been talking about getting rid of for years, but William Loeb had kind of never really pulled the plug on her. Her printing press was a disaster. And I found all of these letters between Nacky and her brothers and her cousins, um, many of whom were running newspapers in the Scripps newspaper universe. Uh, she and her brothers had put aside their McCarthy era political differences. Um, and we're actually very careful to never discuss politics and their letters to each other. <laughs> and I think we all have relatives like that. Um, and but instead, they were just these fascinating discussions about newspaper operations and really just like the day to day minutia. She would ask. Or seek advice on everything from, you know, what type of ink she should be using to employee health insurance plans, um, and she was really involved in day-to-day newsroom operations. Um, I had former employees tell me they remember her, you know, kind of leaving her office to, to go to the vent, you know, go to the break room and get a sandwich from the vending machine. Like she was this incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful woman and was just on a day-to-day basis, very normal. Uh, an employee, an employee once, um, an employee's family member once lost everything in a, in a house fire and Naki almost immediately circulates this memo asking for donations with this very detailed list of like what the family needed, what the family's baby needed, you know, right down to the size of the the onesie that the baby needed. Um, and so she really did care about that kind of stuff. Um, there was apparently some ongoing squabble about smokers and non-smokers in the building. And I guess she tacked a memo up saying she wasn't going to touch that one and they needed to figure it out themselves <laughs> and she didn't want to hear about it again. Um, so There was a lot of, you know, her day to day life in the 80s and the 90s um, was a lot of that and a lot of encouraging her editors and um, the reporters who worked for them to get out into the communities and, you know, cover bean suppers and town meetings and local police logs and high school sports. So she really cared about that stuff. Um, both because it's important to civic life, but because it helped engage audiences with the union leader, which turned to more political power. At the same time, she was also working to cultivate this other audience. So I've just described the the local news product that local readers of the union leader wanted. Um, Even the ones who maybe disagreed with its politics would buy it because it had their kids, you know, high school soccer game on the sports pages. Um, At the same time, Naki was very busy cultivating a national audience for the union leader that subscribed to the paper by mail and they would receive the paper by mail and they would um, correspond with her and submit letters and columns to be printed in the paper. And the union leader often bragged that it printed more letters than any other newspaper in America. I have no idea what metric they used <laughs> to, to figure that out. But it is true that there were a lot of letters and a lot of columns by people all over the country, um, most of them writing in about the conservative politics of the day. And under NACI, the union leader did other things to get the paper's editorial voice out beyond the boundaries of new hampshire one of the most interesting things was creating a monthly aggregation of all of the union leaders editorials so the ones that mackie wrote the ones that the other um, editors wrote and they put it into they it's almost a zine and they called it the union leader reader and they sent it um, to conservative power brokers all over the country, they also made sure that copies of the union leader got to Capitol Hill, and um, they would she would sometimes um, airmail them to Reagan's White House just to make sure. Particularly if she wrote an editorial that was critical of Reagan, she wanted to make sure he saw that. And the and she and Ronald Reagan had this fascinating, almost flirtatious correspondence for years.
0: I was thinking the fact that she maintains her influence is, is something that's very evident from the start of your book. You describe this, uh, you know, this uh, dinner that she's holding uh, in uh, 1985. You know, Reagan's just been reelected by a landslide, but already she and, and other conservatives are, are, are wanting to ensure that whomever wins the nomination, whoever succeeds Reagan, maintains that conservative. Uh, standard, And as you explained, she is at the forefront of that in terms of New Hampshire, that she has this dinner where a lot of potential candidates are coming. And as you mm-hmm. explained, she has one particular candidate in mind whom, while he doesn't run in 1988, becomes a uh, very important figure in Republican politics and, and one that she plays a very significant role in terms of promoting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's Pat Buchanan. So um, the, the title of the book, Political Godmother, um, actually came from an interview that I had uh, with, with Pat Buchanan. He tells pretty much everybody that his national political career um, would not have unfolded the way it did had it not been for Naki Loeb. And, and he has called her multiple times his political godmother and the political godmother of, of the modern right. And I find that fascinating. So Naki and William Loeb first met Pat Buchanan when he showed up in the middle of a snowstorm at their mansion in Massachusetts. And he was working for Nixon that year and was trying to figure out if the Loeb's were going to endorse Nixon. Because as you said before, um, I think the best way to describe it would be um the the Loebs and Nixon had an on-again, off again relationship. It was complicated. Um and so Pat Buchanan went up to to find out um how they might come down in in that particular campaign. And they just got along really well. He said he felt very welcome and they stayed in touch. Um and they published Buchanan's column so after you know Buchanan for most of his career jumped back and forth between working for politicians and writing um a syndicated conservative newspaper column and the union leader would often publish his column um and he and Naki wrote letters to each other frequently um she admired him greatly. And in the late 1980s, believed that he would be the perfect person to sell right wing conservatism to a new generation. You know, he was in his 50s at the time. So he was fairly young, um, certainly younger than Reagan. And um, she really believed that um, he could sell the movement to a new generation. And she really, really wanted him to run in in 1988. Um, And he did not, um, and this has been pretty well documented, you know, he and Jack Kemp were really good friends. And um, they worried, you know, Buchanan worried that if he jumped in, it would be disrespectful to Kemp and might um, split the conservative vote. Uh, Kemp turned out to be not a great campaigner uh George H W Bush the the vice president at the time um and a more moderate republican got the nomination and um Nackie was livid but uh, a Bush presidency was much better to her than a Dukakis presidency so she um offered a kind of tepid endorsement and then really really tried to support Bush um in 88, 89 um during the Gulf War but at the same time was continuing to have conversations with Buchanan and was really urging Buchanan to consider challenging the incumbent in the 1992 New Hampshire primary and um Buchanan told me um in in an interview I had with him a couple of years ago that you know he would not have done that had he not known he had Nacki's support. Now, whether he might have done something else to try and challenge Bush, I don't know. But as far as his decision to jump into the 1992 New Hampshire Republican primary, um, he said that he would not have done it um, had he not had the backing of Naki Loeb. And she had really worked on him for a while to, to get him into the, to get him into the race. And, um, he almost won New Hampshire that year. Uh, and there were a lot of, a lot of factors that contributed to that. It was, um, you know, the economy had tanked, Bush's approval ratings were way down. Um, and New Hampshire's manufacturing sector had really suffered in, in the recession in the early nineties. And, um, you know, a lot of political scientists view the 1992 uh, primary as kind of a, a classic protest vote. So just because a New Hampshire voter was voting for Buchanan doesn't mean that they necessarily agreed with him or with Naki Loeb. They, they may have just been frustrated with Bush. So I, I think we want to be honest about, you know, the the limitations of, of what his near victory said. Um, but As far as the evolution of the conservative movement goes, it was really significant because his near success in New Hampshire in 1992 helped get him a speaking spot at the Republican convention that year. And that's where he gave what has become known as the culture war speech. Um, It's kind of this iconic, fiery, divisive speech. Where um, you know it was very religious, it was very moral. Um, it kind of drew a lot of the the lines that were debated in the '90s and and right now on you know marriage equality and women's rights and structural racism and and all of those things we are still debating and talking about today. Um, it, they very much, he really elevated them as part of the political conversation in, in that speech in, in 92. And he clearly credited Naki with helping him get there, get to the convention, so much that he actually asked the, the Bush campaign if he could have Naki Loeb come to the convention and introduce him if she was willing to make the trip. And um, the the Bush campaign that had at that point been dealing with um, very public and problematic criticism from Naki and William Loeb for for the better part of 20 years, or for nearly 20 years, gave a hard no. (laughs) But, but, you know, I, I think it's evidence that Buchanan really credits her and the union leader with um, you know as a key ingredient to his success, um, now would he have been successful and been as big a voice in national politics without her? I don't know you know you you can't really kind of play that kind of parallel universe game with history um, but i I think it is it is important to to note that he credits her with with a lot of that
0: so having. You know, exercised this uh, influence that really disrupted uh, the Republican Party and uh, directed on a different course. What were her final years like, and 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 what were her concerns uh, regarding uh, you know, journalism and, and, and politics in in those final years? And how was she adapting the paper to them?
1: Yeah, so her health declined pretty rapidly um, during the mid to late 1990s. Um, largely, um, as a result of the injury she sustained in, in that car accident. Um, and she, uh, you know, she did her absolute best to stay active, um, and stay engaged. Um, but she, she just really, her, her energy started to, to decline. And I know she was very frustrated by that. Um, so, there were a few things going on, so I'll start with the newspaper operations. So she had, in in the early 1990s, she was very very concerned about outside corporations coming in to buy up newspapers in New Hampshire, um, and there was a small chain of weekly newspapers in the communities around. Um, the union leaders core coverage area um, and the couple that owned them wanted to retire. And so they were going to sell them. So Naki um, kind of secretly bought this chain of newspapers. She didn't, you know, she didn't tell her staff she was doing it. It was very hush hush. Um, And she and her eldest daughter, whose name is also Naki, they co-ran these papers and they were the least political publications on the planet. They just, they ran school lunch menus they covered local select board meetings, um, high school sports. They had nothing to do with politics. And um, her daughter told me that um, the elder Naki would, would often joke that if she'd known running weekly community papers was this much fun, she would have gotten out of the, the daily newspaper years ago. <laughs> um, so she was doing that. And I, and I think she just had some real joy in, in that during, um, the final years of her life. Um, at the same time, she and her daughter were making arrangements to create the nonprofit Naki Loeb school of communications that I talked about earlier to make sure that the union leader would not get bought up by a corporate chain after her death. Um, and she was, like I said, she was very concerned about chain ownership. I think because she worried, about the news product, but also about it dulling the union leaders' editorial voice. And while I was writing the book, um, you know, I I think the the dangers of detached corporate ownership for news organizations was probably one of the few things that Naki Loeb and I would have agreed on. Um, and I mean, she was right. Like we've seen major corporate chains um, like Gatehouse buy up and gut the the local news apparatus in this country. And that's having real consequences for our sense of shared facts, um, for our ability to engage in civic debate. Um, So I think she was very, very right about the challenges um, and risks of of chain ownership. So from an operational standpoint, that's what she was doing during the final years of her life. Um, From an ideological standpoint, um, she was very concerned about the future of the conservative movement. And um, she kept encouraging Buchanan um, to stay involved. He ran again in 1996 and he won New Hampshire. He, he, he won the New Hampshire primary that year. Um, he of course did not win the presidency. Um, Joel was the nominee. Clinton eventually won the white house. Um, but Naki really viewed her role as, um, kind of, a, a almost like a mess. She viewed Buch- Buchanan almost as like a Messiah like figure. Um, selling the movement to the next generation, like she had seen Goldwater do all those years before.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, so uh, as I said before, I'm a, I'm a professor, um, and I'm ramping up for what is going to be the weirdest fall semester ever. Um, <laughs> we're doing, we, I am in my office on the Northeastern campus right now, and students are moving back in um, with masks on and all sorts of social distancing. So I am just really excited to see them, um, even in a weird way. Um, and I'm kind of kicking around a a few ideas. Um, I do a lot on gender in, in modern politics, um, and modern political journalism. So I may be doing some writing attached to the 2020 campaign. Um, and I, I also have a project, I'll, tell you about it um my grandmother was a beauty queen in the 1950s um she was mrs uh, mrs michigan and competed in the mrs america pageant and i think there might be a long essay or a book there i'm not sure what it is but this idea of a beauty pageant that had ironing as an actual competitive category is uh, <laughs> <it's> kind of <laughs> fascinating to me <laughs>
0: Well, I do look forward to reading that essay when it comes out and and best of luck with the upcoming semester.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. This was great.
0: Well, thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You too. Thanks. Thanks.